I know that when it comes to planning sermons that I, I'm almost exclusively devoted to uh, expository style preaching versus the more common uh, topical style. And for any that aren't familiar with the, with the term expository preaching, it's just simply preaching that exposes the text of Scripture to the hearers as God delivered it to the original audience. Uh, trusting that God wanted each book of the Bible that we have put in the form and in the order that we have it in and free from any outside agenda uh, or from personal bias on my part, uh, but that instead just seeks to understand the text in its own terms. In other words, uh, the sermons that I bring you just to each week aren't me harping on my uh, favorite topics or, or about uh, en vogue ideologies or me having axes to grind. It's just God's Word, book by book, uh, chapter by chapter, sometimes even all the way down to verse by verse as we travel through God's Word together, uh, wherever that takes us, which also means, like it or not, we don't just get to skip uncomfortable topics uh, or unpopular doctrines simply because they might make some folks ill at ease uh, or ruffle a few feathers or, worse yet, make me the target of the occasional overripe tomato. Uh, and so it's with that in mind that I want us to turn again to First Timothy uh, and our text today that expands on the theme of prayer that we looked at last week. So I hope you have your, your own Bibles in front of you, and we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. I was going to have JJ come up and hold a, an umbrella over top of me in case you ladies did sneak out any, any uh, overripe fruit in here in case you've been reading ahead. Um, so 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, and this is Paul writing to, to Timothy. He said, I desire that in every place... The men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the faithful testimony of your word. Uh, so many times, Lord, even when we come to difficult passages or difficult things to understand, Lord, we need wisdom, we need discernment. And so, Father, I ask that you would send forth your word today by your Holy Spirit, uh, because you've promised that whenever it goes out, it never returns to you in vain, but accomplishes all that your purpose. And so we ask you for that now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't flinch too hard when I read that, did I? Right. But, you know, we, we've talked several times before about the fact that you know, women were the first at the cradle, and they were the last to leave the cross. Uh, and even though I've talked about it in uh, several messages, I think it's worth repeating that despite the charge of feminists over the years, that Christianity and the God of the Bible uh, are, are maybe anti-female or horribly oppressive to women, that nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the reality is uh, that the actions and teachings of our Lord have done more to raise the status of women uh, than just about anything else, and raise them to unprecedented heights. The passages of the Bible are filled with the names of great, great women. 
Right? For instance, of course, there, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? The one who uh, had God's special favor at the incarnation and is immortalized not only in Scripture, but in the recitation of the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed that we share on a regular basis. Uh, and interesting, though, who, um, even though Martin Luther preached against the idolatry of Marian worship in the Roman Catholic Church, still always referred to Mary as our Blessed Lady out of respect. Uh, and then, of course, there's Eunice and, and Lois, who taught young Timothy, the recipient of today's letter, the way of God's salvation. Uh, there's Lydia, the, the business owner from Thyatira, uh, who was converted under Paul's ministry was actually the first recorded leader of a woman's Bible study. There's Christ's encounter with the woman at the well, who was, if you remember, the very first person to whom our Lord plainly reveals his Messiahship uh, without using any parables or any figures of speech. He just, just tells her straight out. And there's Mary Magdalene. The, she was the early follower of Jesus, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Uh, from, remember, she's from the town of Magdala on the shores of Galilee, and Mary was not just a follower of Jesus, she was also a supporter. If you remember, the Gospels tell us that she and other women cared for Jesus and the disciples at their own expense. She was also watching as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, as they placed Jesus' body in the tomb. And then, remember, she came back on Sunday morning with the other women uh, to finish anointing Jesus' body with, with spices, figuring probably rightly that the two men left to themselves had probably made a real hash job out of it, uh, and they would just come and tidy it up a little bit. And, and, but she ends up, remember, seeing the risen Jesus and being given the job of carrying the news of the resurrection to his 11 male disciples who were still bravely hiding in fear. Uh, and Mary did it in the midst of the Jewish cultural context in which women, in most cases, were not allowed even to give testimony in court uh, even if they'd witnessed a crime, because according to the rabbis, they were deemed too unintelligent and emotionally unstable. I also think that means God had a great sense of humor and irony in sending Mary to be the one that got to announce this. But either way, guys, praise God for women, right? Amen, somebody. Yeah, praise God for women. Have I shocked you ladies all into silence already? Right? And so in light of all that, let's, let's just agree to set aside the influence of the radical feminist agenda that's always trying to give the Christian faith a black eye as being misogynist in its teaching and complicit in oppressing women and demeaning them, you know, back down to Edwardian era gender roles. Uh, to, now, to which you may say, well, pastor, you know, that, uh, that verse you just read from 1 Timothy isn't really helping your case all that much. Uh, it sounds awfully dismissive of women and repressive of their role in society, and maybe a little like the whole, you know, Handmaid's Tale stereotype with that save through childbearing bit. Uh, and, I, and I'd have to concede your point on that and admit that over the centuries that unscrupulous pastors and chauvinistic husbands have used these and similar verses to subjugate women and girls. But that just means the first question that we have to deal with is, those men, when they were doing that, were they using the text and the context of Scripture correctly or incorrectly? Incorrectly, right? When they did that, were they teaching with its original intent or were they parsing it out with their own particular bent and trying to advance their own particular agenda? Right? And the answer is the latter. Which means that those folks were not just misusing but actually abusing both Scripture and women in the process. But you know, unfortunately, you can take almost any Scripture out of context. And we can't just always throw the baby out with the bathwater. And just one more quick thing here, you know, as you're thinking about this, 
One contemporary philosopher and theologian has said, you don't ever prejudge an idea on the basis of those who misuse it. Right? So we've got an idea here, but we can't just prejudge it and dismiss it by those folks who've taken it wrongly. And so what I want us to do for the super short time that I have left uh, is just ask you to set aside whatever you may be thinking or, or feeling or uh, may have heard about our primary text today. Just listen to what I want to share with you, but more importantly, uh, encourage you to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so where do we begin? Well, I guess we begin at the beginning uh, because the Bible begins with the equality of the sexes as persons and as spiritual beings and in their standing before God. Both Adam and Eve were equally created in Mago Day, right, in the image of God. But before long, Adam and Eve's disobedience uh, to God's commands resulted in certain consequences, particularly in the area of male and female relationships. When we read God's decree in Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Uh, with the result that every marriage throughout history has been this ongoing struggle between the sexes with women constantly seeking control and men always trying for dominance, right? And both of them doing it in ways that's anything but obedient to God or loving toward each other, right? Does that play out inside anybody else's household during the week, right? But, you know, brothers and sisters, just as surely as the Bible begins with the equality of the sexes, it also, without making one inferior to the other, calls both men and women to fulfill gender roles and responsibilities specifically designed for them by our Creator. And varying depending on whether they're being carried out in the context of the, the local gathered public church setting uh, or within the environs of the home and the family or the marketplace, which is why we read in Paul's letter to Timothy, which is you know, primarily written as instructions to the church, he said, I desire that in every place the men should pray. And I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And so the command here from our Lord Jesus by his Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul is that in the weekly meetings of the local church, that as we read, remember last week, that prayers are to be offered for kings and for all in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all goodness and reverence. Those prayers are to be made by men. And just so there's no wiggle room here, the inspired Greek word used in the text uh, is the word andros, meaning adult males, and not the more generic anthropos for men or humanity. So no matter how much you or I or anyone else may want it to say something else, the Bible says that in public worship settings on the Lord's Day that men lead. Not, not men and women, but men. And, and don't mishear me, this obviously does not include women's conferences or missionary conferences, or any other context, or anything else that you may want to throw out there. Um, we're talking strictly about Lord's Day public worship, which men exclusively are to lead. And like Vodi Bakum always says, sorry folks, I don't write God's mail, I just deliver it. Right? And if that didn't get me in enough trouble, <laughs> the teaching goes on to say, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control and not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So first of all, what is this not talking about? It's not talking about what ladies should wear at home or what you wear to the mall or what you wear to school or to a wedding or a graduation party or a Christmas banquet. We're only talking about what women should wear in church 
And it also doesn't mean coming with uncombed hair and dressed in feed sacks, right? Rather, it's an admonition to dress out of respect for the Lord and in an attitude of worship and not trying to impress the other ladies of the church or worse yet, trying to attract the undue attention of the men. And here again, as always, it's important to understand this biblical language and thought, especially when it comes to comparing and contrasting between two different things. Because what the text is driving at here is, ladies, as beautiful and as refined as you want to appear on the outside when you come to worship, be even more so on the inside, right? With what is proper for women who profess godliness, and that's good works, right? And don't forget, the Bible gives the same admonition to men, right? Same type of criticism and comparison our Lord Jesus gave to the men of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. And when he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like unto whited sepulchers, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And so it's great to be pretty on the outside, but it's only artifice and pretense if you're not full of Christ and of good works on the inside. In which case you may be fooling yourselves and uh, perhaps even fooling me, but you know, as the old saying goes, you can fool the pastor, but you can't fool the master. So moving on quickly to verse 12 that I touched on in the beginning, still speaking about women in the church meeting, we read, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And again, what does this not say? It doesn't say women can't talk in church. It doesn't say women can't sing beautifully as Miss Pat did to the glory of God in hymns and solos and in choirs. It doesn't mean women can't make announcements. It doesn't mean women can't do missions presentations or do special readings or anything else that you want to name. In fact, just to demonstrate that, I've asked my beautiful bride uh, after the official part of the sermon is over, uh, to do just a two-minute address of encouragement to the ladies from down front here. But what that verse does mean, and it's crystal clear, that a woman is forbidden to preach from the pulpit or to preside at the Lord's table. And, and I know some of you out there thinking, well, pastor, you know, all of that was just uh, for the days of ancient Israel and then carried on into Paul's personal biases and, and his repressive female demeaning attitude of first century culture. Uh, you know, and we're much more evolved than that now. We're more sophisticated. We're more egalitarian in our outlook on things than they were when that passage was written, but not so fast because if you notice, the passage never mentions Mosaic law at all, never mentions the prevailing social mores of Paul's day. Instead, and in my opinion specifically to counter that objection, the Holy Spirit has the apostle ground his teaching all the way back in the created order at the very beginning of time and in God's original plan for the universe before the disaster of the fall. Uh, and by so linking his teaching to the creation account, Paul proves this is not merely his opinion, but this is God's desired design rooted in creation itself. That's why we read, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was. Which makes the temptation on the devil's part make all the more sense, because what was his biggest beef, right, about his lot in life? What, what did the devil hate the most? that he wasn't first, right? that he wasn't the object of worship and attention and universal adoration, even though up till that point he was God's chief uh, heavenly worshiper. Let's listen to this description of him in Ezekiel 28. Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So you see, he, he had everything, but it wasn't enough. 
He didn't want a supporting role regardless of how important and how exalted it was. And that's the very same temptation to Eve, right? In, in verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And I want you to notice here too, uh, this is why that same verse, verse 13 in our primary text says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was. But I want you to think about this. Far from being down on women, instead, this actually places the blame where the blame is due, and that's on the man. Right? He was right there, and what did he do? What did he do? A big fat nothing. Right? One commentator said of this, the scripture here is not being very kind to Adam because while both sinned, it seemed worse to disobey God intentionally as Adam did, as opposed to doing it by being deceived. So whose fault was it? Adam. And Paul reinforces this idea elsewhere in Scripture when he says in Romans 5, therefore as by what? One man, sin entered the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So remember from Genesis 2, Adam was specifically tasked with serving and guarding the garden. So Adam's sin goes beyond just failure to obey God. Adam sinned when he abandoned his responsibility to care for his wife. When instead of intervening, Adam silently stands there watching the serpent lie to Eve and watching her succumb to the lies when he should have been sheltering her and making the garden a safe place for her to begin raising a family. And this is where I think the, the role of women really reaches its apex in God's plan for the universe. When we come to verse 15 that says, Yet she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So now is this saying that women have two conditions to be saved, right? Namely, you have to trust in Christ and then you have to give birth to a child? Of course not. Of course not. Scripture is all too clear that there is one and only one condition to be eternally saved and that's to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the good news of the risen Christ. Right? And there's a whole lot of different interpretations about what exactly this means. Uh, one commentator had uh, talked about placing the emphasis on the word through in the passages. You know, being saved through something doesn't mean being saved by it. So in other words, it may mean that uh, even though childbirth is dangerous, in other words, uh, even though the fall brought uh, and pain and, and danger into the birthing process, that women are saved not by means of it, but preserved through the process uh, and come out safely on the other side of the experience, quickly forgetting the pain and instead praising God for a brand new life that was born, a life that she was uniquely gifted to form within her body in a way that no man that has ever lived will ever experience because it is exclusively and absolutely the role of a woman. But I don't want to get this too complicated because I think that those commentators and often we as Christians miss the most obvious uh, connection of this whole passage. And that is the fact that it's not so much about men and women as it's about Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we teach that every scripture points to Christ? But then we get to a text like today's and we get all distracted into these competing camps about what it means and what it doesn't mean and, and what time period it was for and about who gets to be in charge of who, and who has to listen to whom. And those things are not unimportant, but they're kind of beyond the scope that we have for today. So just to kind of pull this all to a close, uh, I want to close this out by looking to Christ and to the only place where our earthly divisions and our distinctions stop, and the ultimate place where things are resolved according to God's will, and that's in the person and the work of Jesus.
So we can't miss the plain reading of the text here by getting lost uh, in how it's divided up. And we need to read it like this. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she'll be saved through childbearing. So who's the she? Who's the woman he's talking about? Eve, right? And what future child did God promise that one of her descendants would bear? Jesus, right? So the whole context here refers to Eve and to her temptation. It only makes good sense and it only takes good basic biblical interpretation to affirm that verse 15 to refer to the role of woman in giving birth to the Savior. In fact, to be even more specific, the literal Greek translation puts the definite article in front of the word childbearing, so we actually could read it, she will be saved through the childbearing, right? Be saved through the seed of the woman, the one that without any male involvement produced a miraculous birth that would become the Savior of all mankind, both men and women. That's the promise of the Messiah all the way from Genesis chapter 3 that the Apostle Paul keeps appealing to in making this argument. And so far from demeaning women, this gives womankind the greatest participation in the greatest gift that the world has ever known. A gift, folks, without which I would have nothing to preach about from this pulpit. And no Lord's table to, provi- to preside from. And no hope for any of us in this world or in the next. And so, ladies, I encourage you today in Jesus' name, serve the Lord and his kingdom in the way that he's designed. And I promise you, I promise you, you will never feel disappointed. You will never feel put down. You will never feel pushed into a corner or made second class. Ladies, God loves women, right? Much of the ministry of the local church depends on women. Just look at the talented women on our board of trustees, Because, ladies, the Bible nowhere restricts women from exercising the fruits of the Spirit or from giving their testimony or from using their giftedness to build up God's kingdom or from sharing the good news of the gospel with everyone that they meet. Amen? Come on in. And that that concludes the, the official sermon portion, but as promised, I want to invite my beautiful bride to come up and just share a quick word of encouragement to the ladies of the church. surprising and beautiful. So be the glory of your husband. Be the concentrated and intoxicating incarnate poetry that tells the story of death and resurrection. And then throw yourself into the task of glorifying. Work hard. Be ambitious. Be productive. Learn more. Run harder. Take the gifts God has given you, the desires he has given you, the constraints that he has given you. And then figure out how to weave those into something glorious, something compelling, a beautiful aroma that can't be contained, and that beckons a broken world to come and taste and to see that God is good. God is good. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for the gift of the roles that you've given to men and to women. Uh, Forgive us, Father, for how often uh, we break down into camps and categories and worry about what the other one should or shouldn't be doing while we don't worry about what you've given us. So, Father, I ask you to send us out this week to live out the lives that you've given us in this kingdom uh, and to do it, Father, for your glory and for your praise. And we thank you for all that you're about to do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.